Hello and welcome to Hardtack episode 14, Dunkirk part 1, The Fall of France. I'm your host Sam and with me is my friend and co-host Mike. Hey Mike, how you doing? Pretty good. Um, it's morning, which is backwards for me. We usually, I usually record at night and you in the morning, right? But Yeah, um, so it's a bit different today, but... Yeah, I've got my Irish coffee. I'm ready to go. Irish coffee. So a bit of housekeeping before we move on. Quick reminder, come say hi and follow us on the Hardtack Podcast Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all available through our link tree in the episode description. You may also email us at hardtackpod at gmail.com with comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Please take the time to leave us a review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks. All right, let's get into it. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now put on your Kevlar, secure your lookies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. This week's episode, we will cover the German invasion of Belgium and the retreat to the port of Dunkirk. So when you think about Dunkirk, you might picture the historic evacuation on the beaches, right? But have you ever wondered why the Allies retreated to the shores of Dunkirk? What decisions were made that led to their retreat? If you have, well, fantastic, because that's precisely what we're going to answer in this episode. This episode is the first part of a two-part series where we will discuss the events leading to the Allied retreat. In part two, we will explore the actual evacuation. As we were discussing splitting Dunkirk into a two-part series, Mike and I discovered how convoluted the Western campaign in France was. There are so many moving parts that made it really challenging to identify where exactly in the campaign we should start. For this reason, we will focus primarily on the movements of the British Expeditionary Force, or the BEF, with a brief overview of the French and Belgian units that landed on the beaches of Dunkirk with the BEF on May 26. When you said you wanted to do Dunkirk, uh, I was all for it. I just didn't anticipate how large the evacuation was. And again, you know, when, when I was working on my degree, I, I focused on the Pacific for World War II. I'd heard of Dunkirk, of course, and studied it to some extent, but yeah, it's like you said, you know, I mean, what, why did it need to happen in the first place? And my God, it was such a mess. When we first started talking about it, like, as we said, like, everyone is always aware of, like, the evacuation itself. It's not often looked at, like, the events leading up to the evacuation itself. Like, it's very heavily focused on the evacuation on the beach. What happened beforehand? Yeah, and it, it, it's, it's, there's so much, and, and we're going to get into that here very shortly, but it's just, what a mess. But before we get into it, we must first begin with the event that preceded the initial landings at Dunkirk and the eventual evacuation, the German invasion of Belgium, May 10th, 1940. 
When we talk about why Dunkirk happened, it was the German invasion of Belgium and the Low Countries that really resulted in the evacuation of Dunkirk. So Germany's invasion of Belgium is known by a few different names. Here in the United States, we call it just that, the German invasion of Belgium. Germany, being the invader, simply went with the Belgian campaign. And the invaded nation itself, Belgium, refers to it as the 18 Days Campaign. I thought it was kind of funny how each title gives you a little bit of information, but not all of it. For instance, I didn't know that it was an 18-day campaign, and Belgium uh, clearly states that it's an 18-day campaign. However, you don't know who's involved because they just call it the 18 days campaign. Belgium was invaded in World War I by Germany, and like many nations knew by 1939 that war was more than just over the horizon. Belgium attempted to exercise a foreign policy of neutrality and the hopes of avoiding a second invasion, reminiscent of their experience in World War I. Belgium really just wanted to be left to hell alone. King Leopold, the Belgian king, shored up his nation's defenses and had fortifications built from the Mur to Antwerp along the German border. Naturally, his people were in support and possessed a strong anti-war sentiment. Belgians hoped that their neutrality policy, refusal of British and French troops in Belgium, and the fortifications were enough to avoid any provocation toward Germany, thus denying them justification for invasion. If anything, though, this suited Germany and made the invasion that much easier. The invasion was the first part of the larger Battle of France which was a six-week battle that included the German invasion of Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and France. Nazi Germany had, by May 10th of 1940, been at war with Great Britain and France since September of 1939, though with little fighting to show for it. May 10th really kicked things off on the Western Front. Germany's intent was to invade the Low Countries, which we already mentioned were Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, in order to invade France. Great Britain would find itself alone once France and the surrounding Low Countries were under Nazi occupation. Allied commanders were in agreement that Germany was likely to sweep through central Belgium, as they did in World War I per the German War Plan of 1940. However, Germany chose to make their advance through southern Belgium and northern Luxembourg using rapid, highly mobile tank battalions, which cleared the way for infantry. Perhaps in response to King Leopold's defensive fortifications? I don't know. Antwerp is in the north and Neymar is in central Belgium. The defenses largely ended there, so I think it's safe to assume that Germany did end up sweeping south, at least partially in response to the fortifications that King Leopold had put into place. The invading force was Army Group B, which was two armies, the German 6th and 18th, commanded by Fedor von Bock. Army Group B was allocated 26 infantry divisions and three panzer divisions. And this is for Belgium and the Netherlands alone. Tanks totaled 808 and varied in number between Panzer Ones and Panzer Fours. Army Group B was large, but it has to be stated that the force was diversionary. As large as the force was that invaded Belgium, it was not the German main attack force as the Allies believed it to be. Just for reference, the German invasion force across the entire Western Front and Low Countries totaled 137 divisions and more than 2,000 tanks. 3,800 Luftwaffe aircraft were also available for support, so the overall invasion force on the Western Front was massive. May 10th kicked off with Luftwaffe operations, and that's the German Air Force for those that, that aren't aware. Multiple sorties were flown in the Low Countries, and its first goal was the eradication of the Belgian air contingent because, as we know, air superiority is critical. Germany had the numerical advantage with nearly 1,000 serviceable aircraft, though progress was minimal on the first day of the invasion. I do need to mention a particular bit of history, which, quite honestly, is pretty damn cool. There was a large underground fort in central Belgium called Fort Aben Amile, and the whole of Belgium's defense was centered on this location. The fort was modeled after the French Maginot Line forts, 
It protected three major bridges over the Albert Canal and was characterized as impenetrable, which I thought was funny. And it made me think of uh, episode nine, Sakari, Daggers of the Sakari, because Masada was also considered to be impenetrable. The fort was manned by 1,200 Belgian troops around the clock. The Luftwaffe's answer was gliders. As the first rays of sunshine broke the Belgian horizon on May 10th, a stealthy and deadly glider force of 400 German men landed on and around the fort. Their clandestine approach was successful. The German troops captured gun emplacements on the fort's roof, disabled the guns, destroyed artillery, and secured two of the three bridges over the Albert Canal, then occupied the fort by the next day on the 11th. With Aben Amile occupied, German armored troops gloried in an uncontested invasion of Belgium's southern territories. At the KW Line, which is usually abbreviated as Koning Schuicht Wavre Line is a mouthful and a half to say, the Belgians fared a bit better. We are not going to go into too much detail, but the line was 60 kilometers, or 37 miles, it was a fortified line of defense that ran between Koningsschuicht, which is a province to the north in Antwerp, and Wavre, a province towards central Belgium of Brabant. The KW line was a part of King Leopold's defensive neutrality policy and actually had its roots in World War I. The line was held for three days. However, Germany deployed one of their mighty panzer divisions, supported by Luftwaffe attack planes, and broke the lines, moving into the Ardennes forest. French troops were stunned and retreated back to the Maginot line towards Sedan. The panzers and German troops broke into the Sedan region shortly after, and Belgian troops abandoned the KW line. And all of this, though, where is the BEF? Where is the British Expeditionary Force? Britain had a pact with Belgium that demanded British aid in the event Belgium was invaded. So, Sam, what were they up to while all this was going on? Following the German invasion of Belgium, a message was delivered from French headquarters to implement Plan D, also known as the Dial Plan. This plan called for the BEF to take up a position on the River Dial located in the heart of Belgium to establish fortification efforts to deter a German attempt to invade France through Belgium. Germany had violated Belgium's neutrality by invading, which led Britain to intervene on the terms agreed upon in the Treaty of London 1839, as we stated earlier, which guaranteed the independence and neutrality of Belgium. At approximately 1300 hours on the 10th of May 1940, the BEF began their move into Belgium, with the 1st Regiment of the BEF reaching the River Dial safely and uninterrupted at 22.30 hours, everything appeared to be going to plan. The bulk of the BEF arrived at the dial on schedule the following day, the 11th. At this point, with the Belgian army maintaining strong points and waterways, the Germans had to cross 100 kilometers of territory, meaning it would take them a week or two to reach the dial. However, the Germans moved into Belgium with alarming speed and took the Belgian army by surprise. The Germans were already crossing the bridges at Albert Canal and River Meuse before the engineers from the Belgian army could demolish them. Despite the unanticipated rush of the Germans moving in, they were marching straight toward the waiting Allied forces, or so it seemed, behaving as the Allies had anticipated. On the 13th of May, the first skirmishes took place along the British sector of the Dial, just 112 kilometres or 70 miles south of the forward British and French positions. The German forces marched through the Ardennes and crossed the Belgian stretch of the River Meuse. The French High Command made a serious strategic error in underestimating the penetrability of the densely wooded and hilly terrain of the Ardennes. Essentially, they thought that due to the terrain, it would simply be impenetrable to a modern army with all its motorised encumbrances, and the line of the river would 
was assumed to be easily defendable against light infantry. This meant that the border along the Ardennes was left with little defence, with only a small number of pillboxes and bunkers being built. So if I'm to understand here, they're literally relying on terrain and geography Mm -hmm. for defence. And just assuming it's going to be enough to stop the German invasion. It's pretty much just a large assumption that, oh, it'll be fine. There's it's a really densely wooded area, so we shouldn't need to put up too much defenses. That's essentially correct, yes. That's crazy. So, yeah. Massive strategic error on um, the French high command on that part. No kidding. But now we have Owen Rommel's 7th Panzer Division of Heinz Guderian's 19th Corps leading the way over the Meuse, supported by the Luftwaffe, which carried out the heaviest bombardment of the war. To give some perspective on German ferocity, it is claimed this was the most intense attack the Germans mounted at any stage of World War II. The 19th Corps was part of Gert von Rundstedt's Army Group A, which was comprised of 45 divisions, 7 of which were Panzer Divisions, the bulk of Hitler's armoured resources, etc. Fedor von Bock's Army Group B had only 29 divisions, just two of which were armoured. So, as the BEF and the French Army were holding off von Bock's attacks, the French 2nd and 3rd Armies were manning the Maginot Line on the northeastern French border and other associated areas, which were being put under pressure by von Liebes' Army Group C, which consisted of 19 divisions, though none of them were armoured. Furthermore, with the Panzer divisions across the river, there wasn't much stopping them. Them from moving into northern France. As we can see, the 13th of May brought a lot of trouble for the Allies. But as May 14th dawned, the situation continued to worsen for the Allies. It was announced that Holland had been overrun and its government surrendered to Germany. Although this did not have immediate effects on the Belgian army or the BEF, it definitely took a toll on their already shaken morale. At this point, the French 55th and 71st Divisions lost their positions on the Meuse to the Wehrmacht and Guderian's Panzers dispersed the French 6th Army assembly area west of Sedan and Ardennes. The Panzers continued to move west and the French 9th Army found that the Germans had swept around its southern flank and nearly surrounded their entire force over the next few days. Things were not looking great for the Allies. It became clear that the French Prime Minister Paul Reynaud had lost hope when on the 15th of May, he rang Winston Churchill to announce, quote, We have been defeated. We are beaten. We have lost the battle. The front is broken near Sedan. They, the Germans, are pouring through in great numbers with tanks and armored cars, end quote. The following day, the 16th, Churchill flew to France and met with Reynaud and the Minister for War Daladier and General Gamelin, which, who was the Commander-in-Chief to the French Armed Forces to discuss the deteriorating situation. Gamelin briefed Churchill and Reynaud on the Wehrmacht advances. He explained they had pushed 60 miles into northern France, dispersing the French armies. It was during this meeting that Churchill found out that the French did not have a strategic reserve. The strategic reserve was going to be crucial to the Maginot Line, so that France would not need to mass all of its troops at the border. Combined with the Wehrmacht's speed of advance, the lack of a strategic reserve, and French commanders who were never able to organize a distinguished defensive line before the Germans had either pushed through or around them, the French believed they had truly been defeated. However, Churchill insisted on a counteroffensive rather than a retreat. Way to go, Churchill! Colonel Charles de Gaulle, who saw an opportunity to damage Wehrmacht communications in Sedan as they were exposed and vulnerable, also shared Churchill's opinion to launch a counteroffensive. As a result, the colonel led his 4th Armored Division in an attack on the German-held village of Montcornet on May 17th. Despite some initial success, the attack was driven off. It was attempted again, two days later, but with the same outcome. I just wanted to cut in here and say, 
I found something interesting when I was watching this documentary on YouTube. It was produced by Timeline World History and it was a documentary on the Battle of France and they were kind of discussing the strategic issues the French and British uh, soldiers were encountering and a large part of the reason why they were encountering so many issues, communication. Like there were instances where the British essentially or the French had no idea what they were doing. They were told by commanders, you know, just aim in this direction and shoot. You know, you see a German, you shoot them. It was so bad to the point they said that there was actually a time where the British and French actually fired on each other. Lovely. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting to bring up that one of the um, one of the biggest reasons they were having so much issue in counteroffensives was because of communication. And I, I suppose, especially with the language barrier, it would have made it all the more difficult. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, that's an issue that persists today, even even in garrison operations. Um, one of the biggest complaints that I see amongst troops, even in today's military, uh, at least in the United States and the army, is everybody always complains about communication. And it, it's mm. simple things. Sometimes I think you know, especially with the fog of war, like you see in this situation, it's so easy to get hung up on these broad brushstroke issues or strategic big picture, strategic big picture concerns that we forget just communicating even uh, company level down to platoon level, small things. Mm -hmm. But some of those small things are what lead to major tactical disasters. And it's, 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 it's an issue of, we've got the information, we've got the intelligence, we just don't communicate it down the line. And I, I'll tell you firsthand, anytime that we do a sensing session or we do like a command review, like an annual command review, how are we doing? Let, let's, let's talk to the ranks. What are we missing? Yeah. Communication is mm -hmm. always at the top always at the top. And I don't think that's just the United States Army or military. Mm. I think that's across the board. It's always communication. For People sure. don't feel informed. And unfortunately, in situations like this, it's life or death. And if there's no effective communication between allied forces, then it's just chaos, which essentially I would argue would be one of the biggest reasons why they had to retreat, right? I think I, I think that the communication was a part of it, but I think overall intelligence was also a large part of it. And there was a lot of okay. assumption that was being made. Again, we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're going back to the Ardennes where they said, oh, you know what? The terrain's difficult. It's densely wooded. Nobody's going to come right. through here. Let's mm -hmm. just ignore that. That's, that's poor judgment. But on top of that, you look at the fact that they assumed that the Army Group B under von Bach was going to be the main attack force through, through Belgium. And that was inaccurate. It's already been stated, and the history shows, that Army Group B was a diversionary force. It was meant to distract. But given the size of the force, and again, going off of assumed intelligence that they were going to cut through Belgium through the center, they didn't really take the time to look at other avenues of approach. So there's assumption, there's communication issues, and there's intelligence gaps. And it led to this disaster that ultimately culminated an evacuation at Dunkirk. So at this point, it had become evident, particularly after more failed counteroffensives in the Escau in northern France, that the only hope that allies had for survival was to escape back to England. And a meeting with French commander Below on the 19th of May, it came to light that Gort's deputy chief of staff of the BEF, Brigadier Sir Oliver Lees, had pre-prepared a plan for withdrawal and evacuation. So a little foresight on his part and good planning. He told the French commander, quote, 
There was an imminent danger of the forces in the northeastern area, that is to say the French forces next to the sea, the Belgian army, the BEF and the bulk of the French First Army on our right, being irretrievably cut off from the main French forces in the south. End quote. The only course of action left for the BEF was to withdraw northwestwards towards channel ports, as Brigadier Sir Oliver Lees said, quote, Making use of the successive river and canal lines, and of holding a defensive perimeter there, at any rate sufficiently long to enable the force to be withdrawn, preferably in concert with the French and Belgians, end quote. The assessment of the strategic situation was, however, deterred by the chief of the Imperial General Staff, General Sir Edmund Ironside, who refused to acknowledge that an evacuation was the BEF's only option. In speaking with the War Cabinet in London, he advocated for the BEF to march south and link up with other French armies behind the Somme. The War Cabinet agreed and sent Ironside to France with instructions to move the British Army. In coordination with Belot, the French agreed to counterattack in conjunction with the BEF and attacked the German communications at Arras from the north, while the French 7th Army attacked from the south. Again, we see another attempt at a counteroffensive. On the 21st of May, the 5th and 50th Divisions in the 1st Army Tank Brigade, amongst a few other units, were dispatched and attacked southwards whilst the French 3rd Division pushed northwards. After some initial gains, specifically made during the Battle of Arras on May 21st, the Wehrmacht ended up driving off the counterattack. The Battle of Arras lasted but one day, and was one of several battles that occurred during the retreat to Dunkirk. Despite this, the Battle of Arras had a greater impact on German operations than is generally appreciated. Reinstead, commander of Army Group A, admitted, quote, A critical moment in the drive towards the coast came just as my forces had reached the channel. It was caused by a British counterattack southwards from Arras on May 21st. For a short time, it was feared that our armoured divisions would be cut off before the infantry divisions could come up to support them. None of the French counterattacks carried any threat such as this one. End quote. This was but one factor that led to Hitler's halt order three days later, which we will get to very shortly. At 0730 hours of the 21st, German artillery began hammering the British line. Infantry carrying rafts ran down to the canal bank, but were easy targets as they tried to row across the river, and all the German attacks were deterred. Though the BEF held the line at the Scheldt, the longer they remained stationary facing north, the greater the threat of the command being cut off from the coast. A bulk of the BEF withdrew on the night of the 23rd, and into the 24th, from the Askelt to the Gort Line, along the French-Belgian border that had been abandoned two weeks earlier. Despite this, Churchill remained insistent, again, on undertaking offensive operations. Gort, however, decided to reject these orders and instead pulled back and established a defensive perimeter. Three days later, the War Office in London ordered the BEF's official evacuation. Whilst the final details of the evacuation of the BEF were being formulated, the only remaining possible ports for evacuation, known as base ports, where the BEF could be rescued were confined to Boulogne, Calice, and Dunkirk. However, there was still the possibility that the Germans could advance up the coast, along with the likelihood that Boulogne and Calice would be targeted for capture. However, if these two ports could be garrisoned, the BEF's western flank might be secured, or at the very least, a German advance could be held back and the main body of the British army evacuated. The men of the 20th Guards Brigade made their final stand in the Battle of Boulogne on the 22nd of May. The 2nd Panzer Division launched an attack at approximately 5pm. 
From this point onwards, fighting was continuous around the perimeter. The Germans eventually made some progress and pushed the Allies back into the outskirts of Boulogne. The following day, the German onslaught continued but was met with 80 light bombers from the Royal Air Force, or the RAF. The Royal Navy was also penetrating German positions as they made their way in and out of the harbour. The French and British destroyers caused significant damage, allowing some of the wounded and non-combatants to evacuate. That same afternoon, the Luftwaffe arrived and continuously barraged the harbour, despite them being intercepted by RAF fighters. Fighting persisted until the 25th of May. Though some allies were quickly evacuated, there were still French and British troops serving as rear guards to cover the evacuation of their fellow combatants. Those that remained as rear guards in Boulogne surrendered to the Germans that same day, having sacrificed their safety for that of their fellow soldiers. Simultaneously occurring with the Battle of Boulogne was the Siege of Calais. Calais was of the utmost importance as it was a tactical base port and crucial to the evacuation. Oliver Stanley, British Secretary at State for War, said of Calais, and I quote, Defence of Calais to the utmost is of the highest importance to our country as symbolising our continued cooperation with France. End quote. Already on repeat attack from the Luftwaffe, much of Calais was on fire. Electricity and water supplies were exhausted. Houses and cafes were abandoned and food was scarce. With all the British units withdrawing toward the channel ports, elements of the Royal Artillery were redeployed around the outer perimeter of Calais. The Germans were bearing down on the outskirts, and with heavy attacks from German regiments and the 10th Panzer Division, the Allies were forced back to the Old Town. On the 24th of May, the BEF received a signal from the War Office. Quote, Evacuation of the BEF agreed in principle. When you have finished unloading vehicles, commence embarkation of all personnel except fighting personnel who will remain to cover the final evacuation. End quote. However, this actually angered Churchill as the evacuation was decided on in principle and the only effective evacuating Calais would be to transfer the forces now blocking it to Dunkirk. Churchill was of the mindset that Calais had to remain in Allied control to prevent German advance at the front. It was on the same day, though, that Hitler issued the Halt Order, halting the Germans' advance against retreating British forces. His eye was more fixated on the occupation of Paris, so the operations around Dunkirk were considered to be secondary in nature. This is what we were talking about earlier, where Army Group B's efforts in invading Belgium was division uh, diversionary. Although the Allies mm. thought that that was the main attack group, this statement alone does verify and, and give credibility to the idea that that was a div- diversionary force, uh, that Hitler was actually more focused on France, more focused on Paris and the occupation of, while everything that was going on in the lower countries and in Belgium were diversionary. So, so I suppose that like they didn't actually anticipate if they were successful in encircling the British and allied Mm -hmm. troops, how much that would have favored them later on. Like they didn't actually know. Yeah. 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 You know, I think it's, I think it's interesting because strategically Germany and world war one and world war two focused on moving very quickly, covering as much land as possible and, Mm -hmm. and trying to overwhelm their enemy. What that shows is that they didn't have a plan for a long game. So tact tactically, Germany was obviously uh, conducting warfare uh, superior to their enemy, but strategically mm. they were lacking. Their, their, their whole thing, and, and you can see it in Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg was a tactic, mm. but it was also their strategic, uh, their, their strategic goal as well. Hard, heavy, yeah. fast, but they didn't have the resources, the supply lines 
for a, a prolonged war. And in every case, both in World War I and World War II, it ended up being a long game. And that's something that Germany could not sustain. Yeah. And it's the same thing we're seeing with Russia right now and Ukraine. They thought they were yeah. going to move in quick. They thought they were going to fucking dominate and it was yeah. going to be done. Here we are nine months later and Russia can't yeah. fucking hang. It's the same yeah. shit. Yeah. So so essentially they relied heavily on short and quick combat. Correct. It, it was okay. it was shock and awe. When that didn't yeah. work, long game, they could they couldn't they couldn't sustain a uh, a, a prolonged war. Despite the orders to halt, Guderian continued to press ahead with an attack on Calice. Heavy fighting ensued and the Germans redoubled their efforts with heavy attacks from artillery, infantry, and support from the Panzers. Churchill decided at 2100 hours on the 25th to commit those that remained at Calice to their death. They could not be evacuated. In a message sent to the BEF, he wrote, and I quote, Every hour you continue to exist is the greatest help to the BEF. Government has therefore decided you must continue to fight. Have greatest possible admiration for your splendid stand. Evacuation will not take place and craft required for the purpose are to return to Dover. End quote. The Allied forces continued fighting in Calice until eventually the Germans took the citadel and the Allies surrendered. Those of the British, French and Belgian troops that remained encircled in the northern pocket of France and Belgium now only had the choice to evacuate from the port of Dunkirk. Just three hours after the fall of Calice, the evacuation officially began. At this point, we've had several failed counteroffensives by the Allies. And what is there to show for it, knowing that the evacuation is all but imminent? Here's what we have to show. Exact casualties of the Belgian campaign or the 18 days campaign are unknown. However, Belgian casualties were estimated at 6,090 deaths, 200,000 captured, and 15,000 injured. France suffered 90,000 killed in action and another 200,000 injured. British casualties between May 10th and June 22nd are estimated at 68,000 dead, wounded, or captured with a total of 64,000 vehicles destroyed. The German success was overwhelming, and the casualties paled in comparison to that of the Allies. German casualties were 10,232 dead, and 8,463 soldiers and officers were reported missing in action, so more than likely KIA, or they were prisoners of war. 42,500 German soldiers were injured. So what we have is... Allied efforts, Churchill and de Gaulle's insistence that offensive action was the way to go, and we've got, between all Allied forces, well over 100,000 dead, not to mention the injured. Total waste of life. Which could have been essentially prevented a lot more if they had retreated a lot earlier. But because they kept on insisting on the counteroffensives, the casualties just kept piling up. Right, yeah. And as much as we like to, in the West, shine glory and light and, and all this on the evacuation that was Dunkirk as this great success, truly, the evacuation was a, was a success. But the operation as a whole was a failure. So it, 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 this is why so much we hear the evacuation at Dunkirk and we have these movies and these documentaries and, you know, we, we try and find the bright side of it. But in reality, we had to tuck our tails and run because we failed. And I, I yeah. think that that's why so much we don't know why did we evacuate from Dunkirk? Well, here's why. Because Allied leadership made terrible decisions and failed. That's why. 
So that concludes Dunkirk Part 1, The Fall of France. I just want to reiterate that this campaign was heavily convoluted and given the fact we have only allocated two episodes for Dunkirk, there's only so much we can cover. Hopefully this gives you an idea of why the evacuation was necessary in the first place. Of course, if you would like to look more into the events leading to the evacuation, you can check our sources in the episode description for further study. Join us next week for the exciting conclusion of this two-part series, The Historic Evacuation, of 338,000 Allied soldiers at Dunkirk. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your heart attack dry. Music